live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera, period. From the Ravenswood studio on the north side of Chicago, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. To our international listeners, know that it's a sad time for many in America. A true superhero in our culture has died. And she proved that you can be as tough as a linebacker and love opera. In Chalk Talk, we pay tribute to the late, great, notorious RBG. Then, it's the co-host of Triloquy Podcast and former host of American Public Media's nationally syndicated Music Through the Night, a strong advocate for the diversification of classical music and a self-described agitator. That's right, it's Garrett McQueen who went inside the huddle with Oliver late last week once everyone had learned his name after he was dismissed from Minnesota Public Radio. And in the two-minute drill, Atrebs recovers from coronavirus and audience protests stop a performance of Verdi's Ballo in Mascara. Now that's ironic. <laughs> Great to have a full house on the show tonight. Oliver Camacho, what's why, happening? Why is that ironic? I'm sorry. Following Muscogee. So oh, okay. It was a, there it, it is. He found joke. it. Okay. He found there it. There it is. All right, focus, Oliver. Get in the game. Get in the game. So, Matt, head in the game. Head in the game. I think I was happening. the reason actually why I was, I didn't even know there was going to be a joke in there is because I was so happy you said in Balo and Mascara correctly. That's. You're notorious for your awful Italian. So. It's because Splendidissimo, I've am I right? been making that joke so often in the last six months that it's it's honed to a razor's edge, <laughs> which Matt Cummings, <laughs> now that we're on video, Matt Cummings, you could use a razor's edge, young man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. I've got I, I've got more hair than I don't even know what to I, do. I, I caught your <laughs> Splendidissimo. That was awesome. Thank you for that. So. <laughs> Thanks, Oliver. George, I was about to say how much, how good he was looking. He got the combing going on. Yeah. He got a little, everything a little, just slightly, I got, slightly I got trimmed. The, we, got, we got the tenor mane going on. That's for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Ashley Hardgrave, no tenor mane, but the lovely locks as always. That is correct. Oh, With my gosh. black t-shirt for my white socks, my Chicago white socks that are in the playoffs for the first time since 2008. Very exciting. And the Bears also have started the season 2-0. and oh, Clearly, 2020 is the strangest of strange years. 2-0, and 2-0. Oh, oh. That's two 20s in a row. All right, let's talk some opera. It, it all makes sense. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died late last week on Friday, just as Rosh Hashanah was beginning, one of the biggest days of the year in the Jewish calendar. First, of course, may her memory be a blessing to us all. Secondly, she was a huge opera fan, and we want to take a deep dive into the operas that she knew and loved. Matt Cummings, what is the beginning of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story with opera? I mean, the that Ruth Bader Ginsburg loves opera has been it it, it was such an endearing character trait for her, and uh, it was really central to the narrative of of her as an unlikely pop culture icon. 
And it started in 1944 when she went to go see an abridged version of La Gioconda in a a high school gymnasium. And she said that she fell absolutely in love with it. Uh, what a wild beginning beginner's opera. I, this <laughs> is coming from someone choice. who keeps introducing their friends to opera through like Parsifal and stuff. Giaconda is an odd choice. Yeah, she said that the music just completely bowled her over. And so just to give you an idea of like what she might have heard, uh, I put this clip together of uh, a Metropolitan Opera performance of La Gioconda from 1946. Uh, and so you'll hear Zinka Milanov, Richard Tucker, Leonard Warren uh, with conductor Emil Cooper uh, doing the finale of Act 3. And I like to think that this is the moment where she was totally gave herself over to the art. Justice Ginsburg ha- has has given a number of interviews about her love of opera over the years. And there's one quote from that that really stood out to me uh, where she says that, oh, where is it? Um, where most of the time, when, even when I go to sleep, I'm thinking about legal problems. But when I go to the opera, I'm just lost in it. Like it was the it was the yeah. one thing that could set that brilliant brilliant mind at rest was to just listen to the music and give over to the music and um it's pretty well known that that the opera repertoire doesn't have the best relationship with feminism there maybe not <laughs> that's fair to just say. because of as, how as many lady. women are uh, victims and really treated so horribly uh, but that didn't stop feminist icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg from finding stories about strong women in these operas that she loves so much. And one of those operas that she talked about a lot recently, uh, particularly given how difficult politics has been over the last couple of years, was Fidelio, which is a oh. story about a, a woman who dresses up as a, as a man in order to save her husband from political persecution. Uh, and she referred to it as the opera that best addresses the future in times of political upheaval and suggested that uh, it has the universal values of liberty, faithfulness, justice, and idealism that can offer hope for the future. Uh, And that kind of looking on the bright side is something that I know I desperately need right now uh, in times like these. (laughs) Amen to that. and so she was she was always able to see the brilliance of these operas. Her favorite opera she she talked about as being uh number one and two were a close tie between Le Nozze di Figaro uh, and Don Giovanni. The best opera and, according ooh. to our 
opera bracket, beating out. <laughs> so we are our scientifically thing. infallible bracket. Beating out. We do not have. We don't have to dissent. Concurring, <laughs> concurring opinions. Uh, the opera that she said that she most would have wanted to play if she was able to sing was uh, Der Rosenkavalier, and she would have wanted to play the role of the Marshallin. And then the two operas that rounded out that list were from the Italian wing. We got Otello from Verdi and from Puccini, Fanciulla del West, because that's the one Puccini opera where the woman isn't just walked all over. Yeah, she survives. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, yeah. Not, she not only survives, but she kicks some butt. Yeah. Yeah, I love that opera. That's uh, honestly the most underrated Puccini opera by far. It's definitely my favorite. Uh, just, you know, when, when she comes on and she's got, like, the gun and she's on, you know, sometimes they have her on horseback. It, that's, that's opera, baby. <laughs> Matt, give us, give us a clip of, of some um, Rosenkavalier. Let's hear a clip of the, uh, of the recording of Rosenkavalier that she said was her favorite, which was the Carion recording with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't just a fan of operas, right? She was she was also also kind of made her way into the opera world in other ways as she, well. She did. She went from uh, someone who would go to the dress rehearsals and opening nights and closing nights of these operas at Washington National Opera to the very stage of the Kennedy Center itself. Uh, she appeared uh, pretty famously, I would say, as the Duchess of Krakenthorpe. <laughs> Krakentorf at, um, at the Washington National Opera in 2016, just uh, a couple weeks after something happened earlier in November. And <laughs> was that, that was with Larry note- Brownlee, right? It was with Larry Brownlee and Lisette Oropesa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. the notices didn't even... It, it, there was a couple paragraphs of talking about the Ginsburg appearance before it got to anything else about <laughs> the show. Uh and Anne Majette, writing, writing for the Washington Post, wrote that in a fraught post-election week, the mere sight of Ginsburg was enough to spark a prolonged ovation. But it was Ginsburg's dialogue, read in English, into a body mic uh, that was retooled to fit the speaker and the historic moment, even if that moment might not have been quite what WNO expected when the lines were written. Uh, and let's let, let's hear a little clip about uh, of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in making her first appearance in Daughter of the Regiment. Pardon, pardon, elle a tant à cœur de plaire à Madame la Duchesse. 
the best of the house of Krakentorp have open but not empty minds. The best are willing to listen and learn. No surprise then that the most valorous Krakentorpians have been women. <laughs> And, and so I mentioned the notices of this, which was not just legacy media like the Washington Post, but this got written up in Vulture for New York Magazine. The Huffington Post wrote an article about it called The Glorious RBG. Elle Magazine wrote it up, and but also the Associated Press. And I think that this kind of press reaction to an opera appearance is really representative of the myth of RBG, the mythos of RGG, and an indicator of her pop culture singularity and this unique place that she held in all of our culture. It was covered as a political event and an arts of journalism event and just kind of a pop culture stan event. Uh, and that kind mm. of thing, I can't think of any other figure who would inspire that kind of reaction to an appearance on the opera stage. And she knew that she could serve as an ambassador for this world and represent it as something that she loved and something that she was passionate about. And she didn't hesitate to do that at any opportunity. I think she also saw it as a great equalizer. I mean, my understanding is that uh, Scalia was also a huge opera fan through his Italian heritage. And I think he and RBG perhaps even went to the opera together or at least discussed it in their chambers, in their robes. And then there was an opera written about the two of them and their relationship uh, called Scalia and Ginsburg. <laughs> I'll, be in- I'll be interested to see how many small companies put that on in the next two years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. On Zoom. On Zoom. On Zoom. Well, it sounds oh, like one that you can do true. on Zoom, you know. <laughs> it's true. Anything is possible now. I mean, you can you can see my beautiful face depending on which version of this you're listening to. Um, uh but it really is uh, hearing about all these things. It's really stri- well, what's really striking me right now in this moment is how uh, how by by virtue of her, you know, being a fan of opera, she was really able to kind of cross that sort of divide of relevance that I feel like we we often come up against a lot when we're talking about opera. It can feel very insular, very backward at times, very behind the times. Um, but with a, a, a political figure like Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, up there, you know, fighting the good fight, as it were, um, to have this such a strong connection to the art form and to, and to really bring that forward in her own performance and her advocacy of the art form, uh, it, it, it really is a very emotional thing. And it really brings out what I think this art form is at its best. Uh, uh, you know, you can use it for positive change, positive good, to en- enliven the spirit and enlighten the spirits and, uh, and push forward good change, you know. And I think that as far as opera is concerned, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, her legacy is very much in that vein. And it's something that I think a lot of us in the opera world are really uh, processing right now as we're processing. Can I just go ahead and be really, passing. really crass about it? There are a lot of people, oh, there sure. are a lot of people who idolize Ruth Bader Ginsburg and are going to learn a lot about her life. And maybe just maybe we're going to pick up a couple because they say, <laughs> really? Like, yeah. Yeah. 
You, you're, not, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But I, I do think that there is uh, a, a very much a she she it's it's not so much a matter of pr as it is bringing out what is essentially in my mind the value of the potential value of opera that already existed and she recognized it and because she was such a great woman and a great person uh that's just become that's just been in sharp focus for me uh, over the past so many people are going to learn a little bit about opera and are going to know that there's a character called the Duchess of Krakenthorpe. <laughs> Which is, that can only be a net good for the world. I think I'm going to be the Duchess of Krakenthorpe for Halloween. I think yeah. I've decided. I, I want to <laughs> throw one thing in. Um, and there is this letter that um, her husband wrote to her on literally on his deathbed when he was maybe had a week left to live and he was in the hospital. And the letter begins, my dearest Ruth, and I'm sure if you've been paying attention, you have heard people read this letter. It is the most heartbreaking, beautiful profession of love between two people. Um, and it was uh, turned into a song by a local composer named Stacy Garrup, uh, and it's a beautiful song. And there's a recording of it, and you can hear uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's daughter-in-law, Patrice Michaels, who's married to James Ginsburg her son, who is the uh, CEO of a record label here in Chicago called Sadie. So, um, I mean, I have nothing to gain by telling you about this, but go seek it out, My Dearest Ruth. It's a beautiful song, but based on a really, really like heartbreaking letter. Matt Cummings, we got time for one final clip to uh, put Ruth Bader Ginsburg to rest, at least on the show. What's it going to be? Let's uh, take that love that she had for her husband and do a clip of the duet from Fidelio uh, so that we can all see the light in our times that Ruth Bader Ginsburg told us was there. Tough segment that was Ashley Hardgrave in tears here. <laughs> I say it's um yeah, I, I I have to say as a lady, this one burns hard. But we have an amazing interview, so let's talk about it. <laughs> we do. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. As we are taping this show for all of our podcast listeners, we are also playing with video as well on the show, and we are experimenting with the idea of turning the show to have video content as well. So We may have a surprise for you listeners coming up very shortly. We'll see. So for those of you listening, you're, you're getting the, the beta test version of video, but just the audio portion for now. 
Oliver Camacho inside the huddle. With... I lucked out. I mean, this thing happened last week. And I can't believe you, you know, got this don't, interview. Don't go I'm luck, so man. excited. It's talent and skill and tenacity is what makes it happen. It's, not <laughs> it's all about the hustle. Uh, swagger. It's swagger. That's what it is. But uh, he's, you know, he's obviously has a little bit more time on his hands right now. And I think right. he's really grateful. We're talking about Garrett McQueen. He's really grateful for all the love and the uh, PayPal <laughs> or Patreon or whatever. However, he's funding himself. And um, he has a career. This is just. You know, this is not the beginning of his story. This is part of his story. And uh, I have to say, like, I was so honored that he decided to come on the show and talk to us about, you know, his career to date and Triloquy, the podcast, which I've been listening to. And it's really good. And I get put in my place in this interview, I have to say, like, I, uh, it's interesting, <laughs> but he's very outspoken and he has very strong opinions. And I'm very happy that he shared them with me. And I hope you enjoy this interview. He's going to begin talking about the genesis of the podcast, Triloquy. Yeah, the trajectory is uh, of my career is complicated in many ways because um, it was very laser pointed. Um, it was very fast, but also very problematic. So one of the points that I've been um, making with folks lately is the idea of, of cultural conditioning around music and around music education. When I, you know, uh, went to school and was handed a bassoon for the first time, you know, um, avenues toward uh, playing blues or jazz or getting into all of those things were not presented to me. As a young bassoonist, what I was taught that I could do was teach music, teach band, whatever, or try to go into the orchestral field. So the orchestral field is uh, where I ended up going. Um, you know, after playing with orchestras all around the country, you know, I got a, a tenure position with the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra back in 2013, I believe that was. Uh, five seasons there, I began to transition um, into radio uh, at, that, at that local uh, station, WUOT, moved on um, to my uh, national uh, position, um, and here we are. But, you know, again, with that trajectory, uh, the thing I want people to understand is that uh, one of the problems when we talk about systemic issues and so-called classical music is that we are pathed in um, ways that don't really offer the full perspective of what could be for classically uh, trained uh, musicians. So I'm grateful uh, for my trajectory. I also look back at it as an example of why we need to make some radical changes in this field. So the radio part, had you had any communications training while you were in college, like how to do this, like, you know? Yeah, as a, as a host of uh, an advocate and storyteller of classical music, I always saw myself as the expert. So, mm -hmm. you know, just because I don't know how to turn on a microphone or just because I don't know how to, you know, push X, Y, and Z button mm -hmm. uh, does not mean I, I didn't deserve to be uh, in that position. So I, I never, you know, had that feeling. And, you know, I was lucky enough to come into public radio um, at a station that really valued the music first. So, you know, mm -hmm. they were looking for um, a, a music expert, someone who could really speak to that first. And um, it, it's, it, it proved uh, successful. Uh, for a little while that matched with, you know, um, my uh, different views on uh, the art form uh, really set me apart. You know, we talk about uh, racial equity all the time, but, you know, from that racial equity is perspective. And I think that's the point uh, that a lot of people miss. I just had a I, I had a perspective um, on this art form based on my training and and experiences that uh, proved to be, you know, engaging in a different way for audiences. Well, do you want to share some of those positive or negative experiences that led you to 
you know, A, foundriloquy or B, be the type of advocate that you are for XYZ composers, artists? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I said in uh, my official statement on, uh, I think, (laughs) Open 66 of the uh, Trilogy podcast, you know, my thing was always making this uh, so-called classical music mean something in the moment. I think the examples I gave were sharing uh, Tchaikovsky's 18 and 12 overture on the mm-hmm. day of the Comey hearings, you know, so yeah. there, there are, there are, are, are a number Russia. of, ex- <laughs> yes, exactly, Russian collusion specifically. Uh, um, yeah, so, so, so there are, are a, a number of things, but, you know, the longer um, I began to, um, you know, get, get feedback for what I was presenting and, uh, you know, I would make references to maybe, um, you know, I would play the marriage, the overture to the marriage of Figaro and um, and reference the movie Trading Trading Spaces, Trading Places or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever, you know, and make these different sort of, uh, you know, p- point to other black art forms. Um, and, and in that, you know, based on that feedback, I started thinking to myself, wow, so I need to start talking more about actual black composers. And they were always, mm-hmm. you know, in the mix. But, you know, toward the, the, the latter half of my time, at my first radio station, it, it really did uh, become my focus. There were many days that um, on my shows that only featured uh, black composers or only uh, featured women or only featured uh, composers from you know other parts of the world. That's a question that uh, that uh, we've never asked uh, traditionally when it comes to uh, program after program, hour after hour of music that only represents white composers, exactly. you know, white yeah. men who are dead. You know, so I, I really nobody questions you know, it when it's all exactly. white guys. <laughs> exactly. So I saw it as my responsibility to push that needle and, and to really forcefully say, no, uh, we are here, too. And, uh, you know, they're, they're always going to be the folks who um, have an issue with that, that are a little uncomfortable with that. But by and large, it, it definitely proved to be successful and engaging. I mean, the Nielsen data itself at my first uh, radio station proves it. Um, so can you tell us what is the actual mission of Triloquy? And maybe even if in you know, September 18th of 2020, if maybe it's evolved since originally began. Yeah, the original goal was to um, place classical music in this podcast arena that I saw um, was and still is uh, growing uh, exp- exponentially. Um, you know, take take classical music, put it in that arena, and present it in a way that um, is regular. You know, present it in a way that that I would present it to to one of my friends. Um, over time, uh, what Scott and I began to do was um, understand the power of placing classical music and classical adjacent conversations next to conversations outside of that arena, just to show the world. World, what it could look like if classical music came off of its ivory tower and came and sat down beside everyone else in the world of music. So right now, uh, what Scott and I are doing with Triloquy is uh, presenting, you know, a week in our lives, um, connecting it to classical music, uh, classical conversations, and anything that we can um, uh, attach to that in some way. Yeah, you know, what I like about your show is that it, it teaches... But it doesn't teach in a way that feels like pragmatic, like it's mm-hmm. it's just a pedantic. I mean, to say you just drop in vocabulary. And if you ever feel that there is an explanation for that, you just give it so that your audience feels like, OK, I got you. I, I'm, I'm on track with you. And you don't assume that people bring this like wealth of knowledge. Was that intentional or is that something you eventually came to or is that just the way you actually talk with your friends? You know, one of my first air checks 
um, I brought in a, a radio break. And, and for folks who don't know, you know, when I say air check, I mean, you know, a, a break from the radio that, that a host will do that, you know, their manager or whatever will, will listen to and say, well, I like this part of it. And, you know, mm-hmm. so well, one of my first air checks, um, I, I brought in a break that and I can't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, everyone knows that most times a concerto only features one soloist. But what if it, you know, and then I go on from there. Well, you know, what my manager said was, well, what if everyone doesn't? know that so um, I, I see across the field um, and even in the in the world of podcasts that uh, that surround so-called classical music that uh, there's this attitude that it has to be a beginner's guide so uh, I always wanted to uh, with Triloquy sort of split the difference there I definitely want this to be um, a podcast um, for musicians and music lovers it definitely mm-hmm. is that um, at the same time I'd never want to um, uh, leave anyone behind so to speak so you know if if you know certain certain things we we kind of let go by for example the accidentals in um the the first movement of of each opus of the of the podcast we kind of just let that go by for the people um who are there who get it but you know when we do get into some of those deeper um some some of those uh deeper you know things uh more inside baseball uh sort Mm -hmm. of talks i i try not to leave anyone behind even you the use of the word opus that we use Mm -hmm. uh, instead of episode is something that um, people have asked about, um, and something that people who are in the music world um, find charming and don't have to ask about. So it's 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 always about splitting that difference, trying to trying to ride that fence. Who do you think is coming to your podcast, and what are they bringing? I know you said you you wanted to be conversations about classical music, but at the same time, there's a lot of not classical music on your show. Maybe there are some shows that have almost no classical music in them. You know, right, right. So. Um, I noticed you love Beyonce, but I also, you know, this most recent episode you played Fratres, you know, which is maybe not that deep of a cut, but for some people that's that's a deep sure. cut, you know. So sure. Sure. what level of um, expertise do you think your audience has? And have you seen people reach out to you and say, I didn't get this, or can you explain this or point to this more, or say, I don't really need to hear um, whatever uh, brandy you know next mm-hmm. to Beethoven or whatever. I just I'm curious about that feedback because like I love what you're doing, but I wonder, um, yeah, I wonder really who your audience is. Well, I can tell you who my audience is not. If if someone has an issue with brandy next to Beethoven, they probably should not check out Triloquy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think you know I would be remiss if I didn't you know open up the conversation of that phrase classical music so you know when a person says oh well there wasn't much classical music on this episode well how are you defining that phrase classical music um one of the uh, earlier opuses of the podcast I can't remember which number um I went into a local um school a community school the Jennings school and I asked each of the kids so I, I told the kids you know this phrase classical music has been so um sullied over the years and from my perspective you know classical music is music that is foundational to an experience to a culture to what a person um, sees as the musical representation of the place and the time that they are from so you know with that perspective I had the kids talk to me about what they considered um, their own classical music one 
Monkey had definitely talked about, um, you know, the, the, the Western, you know, European canon as we know it. But most of the kids talked about um, blues that their, that their parents listened to. You know, there was a kid who talked about um, Frank Sinatra. You know, even if you want to get into um, uh, rap and hip hop, that is certainly foundational to a culture. So from my perspective and in my opinion, every opus of Triloquy has plenty of classical music, even if none of it is um, orchestral or chamber or, yeah. or in a way that that people originally sort of um, de- de- defined it. Because let's let, let's face it, um, there was a time when uh, Javanese gamelan music may not have been considered classical, so-called, uh, to mm-hmm. many people. But now that's a sound that most people would say, oh, yeah, we can put that on classical radio. With Triloquy, I'm trying to open up that conversation and that perspective even more. A piano arrangement of a Beyonce song is just fine. There's a piano arrangement uh, that, that I've been listening to over and over again of a Tyler, the creator song, Earthquake, um, for, for the past year year or so that I very much consider um, a piece of classical music. Even if you don't want to talk about the arrangements, um, maybe, you, uh, maybe you remember the, uh, the, the, the group SWV. Um, if they're singing in harmony, um, unaccompanied or not, you know, that is a, a foundational part of my experience as a musician and that that is classical. So my long way of saying, you know, the audience that I am looking for is the audience that wants change um, in a physical way in the world, but also in a philosophical way. Um, I'm also looking for the people who have always felt like they've had to lead these double lives as classical musicians or classical music lovers. Just because you're a violinist or just because you love listening to Schubert songs does not mean that you don't also find value in Drake, for example. So with Triloquy, we're putting all of that together and again, trying to show folks a world where classical music sits and plays alongside everyone else and not in their separate VIP section. Great. I mean, I I agree with you. I will just say that as a person who had to immerse myself in Western classical music culture and understanding it in order to be, to not have imposter syndrome. Actually, I love it. And I'm, I'm very conservative now. I mean, like, if you look at me when I was a teenager compared to me now, like, or in my 30s, um, I became very, very conservative in my taste. And like, I just wanted to learn more and more about this super high level of art. And I'm not saying that other things aren't super high level, but it takes a lot of focus and a lot of practice to become an expert in one thing. And it's hard to be an expert in everything, you know. And, and I see you, you know ready to respond. Go for it. Well, and, and you know what else takes a lot of focus? So something that um, I, I love to do that I was actually working on before we got on this call. Um, if there's a song that is just in my head, in my ear, um, I like to sit at the piano or maybe just create an arrangement for uh, piano and bassoon or, or, or whatever. Uh, the, the song I talked about the song Mine in the last opus of Triloquy. That, that, that's what I've uh, been working on. But, Shona Miller, you know, Mine? Uh, the the uh, the Beyonce featuring Drake, mine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know when when I listen to that music and I tear apart, you know I, I tear it down to the to the bare bones all the way to where I can just sit in front of the piano and play it. You know, are those not skills that we learn in oral theory or 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 or, or whatever? We just learn those skills and um, learn them over here with Bach and all, all of those people. You know, I began this conversation um, by saying, by talking about my uh, trajectory. What if when we went into our oral um, theory classrooms, we were um, taking apart 
um, and, and doing um, a Roman numeral analysis of uh, songs by Margaret Bonds or Florence Price. Mm-hmm. Let's go even further. What if we were treating the music of Beyonce and Drake and all, and all these other people like that, really learning how to apply these skills in a broader way? I think we would see a much more um, colorful uh, music field, but you know, even still today, um, they are just now institutions, and I'm talking about colleges mainly, um, are just now starting to integrate some of the black so-called classical music, you know, the William yeah. Grant Stills, and into the into the curriculum. It's I been think there we all have, this whole time. <laughs> exactly. Um, my my push is for us to 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 go even um, further. Help us um, do a, a a breakdown of a Tina Turner song in one mm-hmm. of these oral theory classes or music history classes or, 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 or whatever. Yeah, I forget what your question was. I'm good at getting no. off tangents. But. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but the, there's so many things I want to ask just based on what you just said, but I do want to stay on track with my original interview. Uh, but I will ask this one question really quickly as a tangent. Um, have you seen your uh, consultant sort of wing of your career uh, now become more valuable? Like, have people hmm. been asking you? Like, please, I mean, like, I know I wanted to talk to you, but I can imagine now are you a firebrand and people just want to hear you speak about what happened and, you know. What, what, I'm, what I'm grateful for, like, I'm grateful for all of the support, obviously. I'm grateful for everyone who's reached out and, you know, making sure I'm okay. What I'm grateful for the very most and I really want to stress this. What I'm grateful for the most is that my journey did not start here. So anyone who um, has seen my tra- uh, trajectory as an advocate, as a speaker, mm-hmm. you know, they were not at all surprised uh, by my uh, termination uh, from, from from my former um, employer because they understand the, the the work that I do. I'm very glad that you know this has put my work um, more. In, in the limelight, I, I'm certainly grateful for that. But um, no one can tell the story of Garrett McQueen jumping into the arena of racial equity because he was the only black person at, at an organization that was fired. Um, you know, the, the, the collaborations I've done um, include working with uh, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, the, the Minnesota Orchestra, um, opuses of Triloquy have been transcribed for um, students down in my hometown of Memphis, and I've gone back down to Memphis to speak to folks. You know, I've, I've taken the stage as a speaker um, uh, multiple times, multiple years um, at Sphinx, um, at the Gateways Music Festival, an all-black classical music festival um, in Rochester. I've worked with uh, the youth orchestras of uh, Los Angeles. Um, I've been in collaboration with uh, uh, with, with all sorts. I, I can I can go on and, and mm-hmm. go on. So um, my, my, my point is, the work has always been there. I'm not the only one. There are many of us. You know, this is this situation is just a part of that. Um, but it's definitely um, pushed my work more um, into the spotlight. I'm grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that this isn't the beginning of the journey. I'm glad no one can tell that story about me. Well, I know we have to tread lightly, but can you describe <laughs> what type of music you were playing on your show on NPR? You know, I was so tickled, and you know, I, I make this point on um, on the la- on Opus sixty six of Triloquy and many others that reading a headline is very different than being you know in the mix, and you, you know, you see that um, augmented when the firestorm is actually surrounding you. You know, I was so uh, I, I laughed out loud. Uh, I saw that you know one of the articles written about me made it over to Reddit, and there was an argument there about why I shouldn't have been playing rap and hip hop on a classical station. So it was nothing <laughs> like that, you know, that I think people have the idea that I was really going in there and, 
and uh, putting some crazy, some so-called crazy <laughs> things on, which I will say I am more a proponent of, of new music. Um, I, I used to say if it was written before the year 2000, I, I don't really have time for it. But mm. <laughs> um, but when it comes to, you know, some of the specifics I was playing, you know, again, I wanted to always speak to the moment. So with the um, with the with the murder of George Floyd, you know, obviously I wanted to dig into the black composers. But actually, before his uh, his murder became national news, it was still just a, a community thing. Um, my first emotion was thinking about the family and thinking about what they were going through. So, um, so that night um, on air, um, I aired a piece by Eric Whitaker called um, "The Last Words of David." That you know, repeat the phrase "My son, my son," as mm. this you know, um, w- when David learned that his his son um, had died. So, uh, and, and and that's a white composer, a, li- a living white composer. So, um, other other examples, you know, I was I've never been a, a fan of and a proponent of airing Wagner. Um, the last Last time I think I was assigned to Wagner Symphony, I replaced it with uh, Manuel de Falla's Suite from the Three-Cornered Hat. So it's not it's not that the music was out there as much as uh, I just wanted to make sure that people understood why they were listening to this. Why is this piece of music important in this moment? So you touched upon it already, but uh, what was it like to be on air like in May and June when everything was really blowing up over there. And um, how did you, what was you, do you feel like your responsibility was like to be a balm for the listeners or to engage them, to, you know, challenge them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a question of to whom do I, and did I have a responsibility? So um, sure. I'm sure there are a lot of people who will say that in that moment, my job was to, calm the listener to, you know, distract them. Hey, look over here while everything else is, uh, is going on. You know, as a black person who, you know, has the track record that I have when it comes to um, race and classical music and racial equity, I saw people looking at me, you know, waiting to see how I could apply all of this. And, and, and that's what I did. You know, uh, Joel Thompson's Seven Last Words of the Unarmed um, is actually a piece of music that um, the music director um, at the time um, agreed that would be good for, for me to share, you know, in, uh, in those weeks. So, you know, music like that uh, was, was definitely there. But, um, but, but, but listen, it, I, th- I think it goes beyond uh, just sharing black composers. I think it's acknowledging that when Mozart, you know, was writing um, his middle period symphonies, my people were getting beat. And we're we're working for free here um, here in America. You know, I think there. Are, uh, I think it's my responsibility to really affirm things like the Negro spiritual as America's classical music. You know, the the genre of music that really came up from the soil here. And and, and of course, when you have a national audience, you know, it's a very broad range of people that you're trying to connect with and engage. In in those moments, though, I saw my responsibility as making all of this relevant. Why shouldn't this building? also be one that is burning down right now. I don't know if you're allowed to, but can you share audience feedback, positive and negative, uh, about how you might have been tailoring your playlists to the moment? Sure. So, so let me give you this example. Um, and, and I can't remember a date or um, the, the tone poems of Franz Liszt and, and, and 
fact check me if you need to. I think it's the 12th tone poem that was actually written um, and used in dedication to a new uh, set of statues over in Europe once upon a time of Goethe and, and another man who, who I can't remember. So, you know, we're talking about statues a lot these days as well, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll present that piece of music you know, and say something like, you know, this was, you know, this piece of music was used to present these statues that are still standing. As you know, many statues are not standing. Will that statue stand? Will that statue stand longer than this piece of music does? And then whatever I say, and we get into the music. So, you know, there's feedback that's like, oh, thank you for really um, speaking to the moment. I know in, in that example that I'm giving, I definitely got a couple notes, one of which was like, oh, just fuck off. You're trying to make this political and um, and, and X, Y and Z. You know, there, there, there's always that that uh, that pushback. I think public media institutions have been over to that pushback for too long. I've mm-hmm. never been one to do that. So it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't bother me. It's just it's just part of the larger work. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I have to be careful myself because I have a job right now, but I noticed that... (laughs) Well, do you um, have to be careful? I think that's the question. uh, Having... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Just because I'm older than you and I I value job security. Sure. Um, But I actually am on the DEI task force for my organization, so I, I am being heard, but I still have to tread lightly. But I just notice how the donors are the the people that we are so afraid of offending them you know um and it's true though that in the business model for most most arts organizations it's this person or these families who are bankrolling the whole thing you know and uh, how do we get out of that you know you, you talk about job security We've seen over and over again that the police don't need a reason to kill a black person. In this climate, especially in classical music, I see it as the power structures not needing a reason to, you know, get rid of us and that to, to kill us in, in, in that way. So, you know, I, I don't think and, and, and I say this all the time when I do town halls, you know, I, I like I always say that I wish I could name a a space a safe space. But the fact is, if you are in a black or brown body, you do not have safe spaces, even your own home, as we've learned from the tragedies of uh, Breonna Taylor uh, um, and and, uh, Botham Jean, I believe, down in Texas. You know, they were killed in their own homes. So, you know, what what does it mean to be secure? What does it mean to be safe in the arts? I don't I don't think I don't think we have that. So, you know, that's why I am as as forthcoming um, as I am because I believe um, my being quiet would be just as dangerous, maybe even more dangerous than my, than, than my speaking out. So if there are donors um, that have a problem uh, with that sort of thing, I think uh, it's the responsibility of an organization to take a second look at um, the audience that they're censuring uh, and the audience that they're targeting. If an organization has an audience that's, you know, and, and let's, let's be hyperbolic here, if, if, a, if an organization has an audience space that's mostly racist, bigoted in some way? Is it the responsibility of the outward facing um, employees in that organization to deal with that? Or is it, a, is it a responsibility of the organization to shift what that audience is to, to attract um, a, a more uh, uh, equitable group of people and, and, a, and, a, and a better culture? You know, I have to hand it to you because I am older than you and I'm probably just a generation older than you. And I grew up in, you know, trying to be American, trying to, uh, I code switched so that 
I would be more palatable, you know, mm-hmm. but I've always been outspoken and I've gotten in trouble so many times for speaking my mind about things and uh, challenging the status quo. And now that I'm 45 years old, I am like shell shocked about the repercussions that I've experienced for saying things. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had your courage. Um, I have your courage, but I wish I acted on it <laughs> more. Sure, so. sure. And I always acknowledge the, the privileges that I have. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to, you know, have a wide network of supporters and, 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 and people who, you know, you know, have my back. So I definitely acknowledge the, the, the privileges that I have and, and being as fearless um, as I am. But I, I think it's necessary. Yeah, unemployment is not fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, our, our audience is used, pretty used to hearing us talk about these issues. Uh, we talk about them mostly in the context of like the opera world and maybe even the administration of arts organizations. Are there other areas that we're not thinking about where racism and maybe, maybe gender inequality or maybe um, homophobia are making it difficult for people to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such a generations long tradition that um, the classical music world has really um, uh, uh, entrenched. It's everywhere. Racism is America's original sin. So everything that comes from us, you know, is that whether we talk about the the songs of, of Aaron Copeland and, and the things that he thought and said about women um, and, and people of color. Fast forward to today and, and look at the, the, the programs of, of, of these uh, orchestras and opera houses before, you know, COVID. Look at uh, curriculums and syllabi of music schools and, um, and conservatories. I don't think there is anywhere where racism isn't in classical music. And, and that word racism, you know, is one that I know uh, people, you know, are, are uncomfortable with in this world. You know, a lot of people, you know, just define racism as uh, wearing a white hood and using the N-word. But, mm-hmm. you know, I see racism as um, the violence that uh, perpetuates, you know, the idea that classical music is only for one person or, or, or one type of people. You know, the, the violence that has defined the aural aesthetic of this so-called classical music over the years. Let's think about the difference between a heightened string quartet and a performance of some, let's say, some West African drumming. You know, mm-hmm. those are two very different sounds. Both are equally classical, one of which makes it onto classical radio more not uh, more more often than not. So, you know, that that's one of the many ways um, in which um, it, it manifests um, and something that I was uh, trying to do uh, in my time on the year. Well, we should probably try to turn it to a lighter topic. Um, I have to say, like, I, I know that our audience is going to now, if they haven't already discovered Triloquy, go. So you can have our eight listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Hello to all eight of you. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> but um, no, I have to say also that your the sound of your show and just how it's edited and how everything is packaged is so beautiful. It's really artistically done. So I don't know if, who your team is or if it's all you or whatnot, but... Um, they're doing a great job and you're doing a great job with that. So I can't wait to listen to more episodes. Uh, I'd love to go out getting your, we've never done this before, but I feel like you're the perfect person to start. Uh, what is your, like, this is me in a nutshell playlist, if you could name 10 tracks. And I think you might even have sent me a written version of this, which if, may I share it with our audience? Like, as yes. A, okay. yes, yes, please. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I would, cause like we like to usually transition to our next segment with some music. So, um, we'll definitely include one of these. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, first, I should say, you know, shout out to Scott Blankenship, who uh, uh, does, you know, the, the co-hosting and um, and a lot of the engineering for Triloquy. Um, and shout out to Evan Clark, who doesn't make it onto the mic, but he does the the, the mixing and, and deep editing um, of the podcast. Um, we're looking for a um, social media person. So if, uh, <laughs> if, if anyone uh, likes being on Twitter and Facebook, reach out. Who likes being on Twitter and Facebook? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but you uh, you asked about uh, this top 10. So, so yeah, uh, it's a question I get a lot. Um, it's actually something that uh, my former employer um, invited um, all of the hosts uh, to share. So, yeah, feel free to um, share that. Um, in my top, and, and, and I should say that my top 10 sort of stuck out um, among the bunch, and it, it, it uh, resulted in a, a couple interviews from um, brother and sister organizations, including um, uh, NPR News, where I got to go on the air and, and, and talk about music to a non-music audience. Um, my playlist um, is very mixed up. Uh, I think I'll start with, you know, what's probably the most traditional, maybe so-called traditional, um, the first symphony of William Grant Still. So I talked about earlier, you know, curriculums and, and, and how that needs to change to, to fit the times. At some point, we're taught the um, the recipe, so to speak, for a symphony. You know, a, a fast movement, usually in so- a sonata allegra form, um, a, a, a slow movement, some sort of dance music, a minuet, scherzo, waltz, whatever, um, and then a finale. Well, all of that is in this first symphony of William Grant Still that has, you know, been nicknamed over the years the Afro-American Symphony. It's just with a, a, a black twist on it. You know, you hear a little bit uh, more swag in that first movement, you know, with the jazzy trumpets. Instead of a minuet or a scherzo or a waltz, William Grant still uses uh, the Afro-American juba dance, which actually um, utilizes um, a musical theme that many people associate with George Gershwin, you know, the I Got Rhythm theme, but it's actually a, a William Grant still uh, melody. So, so th- that, that's definitely um, that piece of music. While some say it's overplayed in some circles, it will always be um, in, in my top 10. It's, it's certainly no more overplayed than anything like Beethoven. Beethoven five or, or, or Beethoven nine, um, but 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 of course you know um, I go into um, other composers including Valerie Coleman who um, Chicago um, Connection. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of folks are um, uh, familiar with and talking about um, her portraits of Josephine, which is, of course, uh, based on the life and times of uh, Josephine Baker, um, mm-hmm. is in my top 10. I also uh, talk about Duke Ellington and affirm him as a um, as a classical composer, even though people will put him in the jazz category, which is another uh, conversation. He considered himself a composer um, of great music. So among his uh, many great orchestral works um, is his Black, Brown and Beige Suite. That I uh, that I love returning to, and I put in my uh, top ten. But outside of that, you know, we have to talk about Nina Simone, who affirmed herself mm. as a black classical musician. Um, her her song "Mississippi Goddamn" will always uh, be in my uh, top ten. Beautiful uh, piano playing throughout pop music, um, including in uh, in another one of my top ten picks. Um, it's the solo reprise from an album uh, by Frank Ocean called "Blonde." Uh, the the song actually only features um, Andre Three Thousand. But if you go in and, and listen to listen to the way that piano um, is, is is played is phenomenal. Um, obviously, there's some uh, Beyonce in there. I love the Beyonce and Jay Z collaboration, uh, "Summer" from their album "Everything Is Love" from 2018, um, and Beyonce's uh, reworking of uh, "Before I Let Go," the the famous uh, Maze and Frankie Beverly uh, tune is up there. Um, and then, and, and and I won't go through um, everything here, but you know, uh, when we talk about songs and sounds that are um, foundational to an experience you know that 
that sort of classical music, that treatment of that phrase. You know, I automatically think of the Fuji's um, remix, rearrangement of Killing Me Softly. That's definitely foundational to my experience. Nas's uh, Life's a Bitch, you know, from his um, album uh, uh, Illmatic, you know, certainly classic to um, the genre of hip hop. And then the Gap Band's um, Outstanding, the last one I'll uh, mention, you know, certainly that uh, black um, uh, barbecue uh, cookout, you know, favorite, you know, uh, you, you, when it comes on at the black wedding reception, you know, it's time to do the electric slide. So, you know, in, 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 in my top 10, you know, is music, it's all black music. Um, it's music that definitely represents, uh, the concert hall, but also definitely, uh, but also music that, um, affirms and reaffirms the classic experiences of black communities across the country and the world. Garrett McQueen, um, I wish we could talk forever. Um, I feel like I would learn so much and it's galvanizing what you, uh, well, what you have experienced, but also how you talk about it. Um, I know you're inspiring people, so I don't need to remind you of that, but um, no, it's, it's really impressive. And um, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Next time you have me on, I'll, uh, I'll give you my opinions on Porgy and Bess. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. me all these years you told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady and you'd stop calling me sister sadie my country is full of lies we all gonna die and die like flies i don't trust nobody anymore they keep on saying go slow What's the trouble? Desegregation, mass participation, unification, do things gradually, will bring more tragedy. Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. In series, the Washington, D.C. standard bearer for opera that speaks and theater that sings, and friend of the show, opens its 2020-2021 all-virtual season with a fairy queen. Didn't we blow it last time they were on the show? And we said they were from Dallas? No, we, we corrected ourselves when they were on the show, but the story we had before they came on we couldn't find the source and we couldn't find the the place where the company exists but the the source was from Dallas and so i think we just assumed Got that it. it was a okay. Dallas based company why yeah. else would they yeah. write about it but i knew in my heart of hearts that it was dc but you know we <laughs> we knew in our core we uh, we knew and we, we covered blew it. We're so, so many sorry. companies on the show how are we supposed to remember all those it's things true. that's what that's what i like about matt math and black <laughs> He's always saying, like, we can't be expected to remember everything. Thank you, Matt, then, for giving us well, permission to make Well, this mistakes. company is presenting <laughs> a season. Uh, and this 
opera, The Fairy Queen, A Fairy Queen, is inspired by classic radio dramas and with the enchanting music of Henry Purcell, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream is transformed into a four-episode podcast opera featuring a Grammy award-winning cast and the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra Hate Cabinet. Hate Cabinet, that's the type Just of a- cheese, I think. Really? <laughs> it sounds like I don't like Riesling to me. It feels like something like a vocal percussion that you would do in like an acapella group. Hit cabinet, hit cabinet. Like you just oh, hear it going over and over yeah, again as like, like a as a rhythm line. It, it's a great. Uh, I I I hit cabinet uh, when I get out of bed at night and I can't see anything. I stub my toe. <laughs> you always are hitting out. cabinet. Um, I, I hate cabinet. Um, I have to say I'm going to try to tease um, something I'm trying to get done right now. Get on the show. Aaron Sheehan sings in this Grammy Award winning cast. I think he's the Grammy Award winner. And I've requested an interview, so we might have Aaron Sheehan next week. Fingers crossed. Well, back back to Head Cabinet. They have all recorded themselves remotely around the globe to make this lyrical, whimsical, and transcendent merging of text, music, and wonder come to life. You know, I have to say, it's it's pretty rich of us as a, our little podcast, just making fun of Mister Cabinet, uh, and just just uh, when all, all, they're all try, I, trying I don't so think hard that's a to person. Create this. I think that's the name of the group. Uh, you think that, but I'm changing my name to Head Cabinet. We're going to change all the OBS stuff, and my new stage name is Head Cabinet. Well, I love it. The four podcast episodes are available on InVision, the in-series digital opera house. Visit envision.inseries.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. I find them in my head cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) End of ad. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. After being fired from the Met, James Levine went to court with the Opera House. Now, according to the New York Times, the Opera House paid Levine $3.5 million in the settlement, a detail kept under wraps since court proceedings began. Levine had only been looking for $5.8 million in the initial lawsuit. A report from NPR states that whistleblowers allege a culture of secrecy and protection at the American Guild of Musical Artists, or AGMA. The complaint points to a planned real estate deal in Manhattan that could drain the union of two-thirds of its assets, a secretive deal with Placido Domingo, and a culture in which, they say, a paid position was created for one of the union's former volunteer leaders. AGMA's national executive director, Leonard Eggert, and its president, Raymond Menard, strongly dispute all of these allegations. Afton Battle, a black woman, has been appointed as Fort Worth Opera's new general director. Quote, Fort Worth Opera is in an incredibly unique position, one of rebirth, evolution, and change, said Battle in a press release. I have been chosen to steer this amazing company, and together we will focus on expanding our reach and engagement into communities that have been historically marginalized by forging relationships with community leaders and stakeholders. Oskana Leniv, apologies for pronunciation, will make history as the first woman conductor at the Bayreuth Festspiele. Leniv will be making her Wagnerian debut with the Flying Dutchman in 2021. Anna Trebko has been hospitalized after contracting pneumonia due to COVID-19. Trebko was forced into quarantine after base Ildar Abdrazakov contracted the virus during performances of Verdi's Don Carlo at the Bolshoi in Moscow. 
On Instagram, she posted, quote, I had two choices, to stay at home and be afraid of getting infected or to go out and start performing with the risk of getting sick. I chose the latter and I don't regret it, end quote. Trebko had previously been very vocal about the closures of performance halls due to the pandemic. October 25th marks World Opera Day 2020, and Opera Europa has partnered with several international organizations to bring opera to audiences around the globe. The 2020 celebration pays tribute to Beethoven's 250th birthday. Online platform OperaVision will stream three different versions of Fidelio, including a concert version, an animated version for children, and a promenade production, which I'm going to say are all now dedicated to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Absolutely. For for the rest of this year, everything is dedicated to RBG. Uh, speaking of DC, the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts has announced its reconfigured reopening. The event will feature Renee Fleming and Vanessa Williams in concert. The configuration of the theater has been reimagined to place artists on a stage extension built over the orchestra, and an invited audience of 40 will enter through loading doors to sit in physically distanced pairs on the stage facing the iconic red interior of the hall. The concert will be live streamed via the Kennedy Center's website on September 26th. Sad news for Frankfurt, but good news for my chances to catch a season that was on my must-see list. Opera, Opera Frankfurt has announced that in order to make the season COVID-19 compliant, it will postpone its new production of Zimlinski's Der Traumgürger to a future season. Opera Frankfurt opened its 2020-2021 season earlier in September and has already made numerous changes to its program. The company cut part of its production of Ipuritani in order to present the work with no intermission, and last but certainly not least, its upcoming production of Le Grand Macabre by Legati was postponed until the 2023-2024 season, and I'll see you in 2023 and 2024. Soprano Enwa Arteta will appear on the Spanish version of the reality competition show MasterChef as a contestant. Arteta's mother is a renowned cook. No stranger to the genre, the Soprano was previously a jury member on the show Prodigos for TVE. Speaking of Spain, a performance of Verdi's Balo and Mascara at the Teatro Real Madrid was cancelled as spectators vocally protested for over an hour over insufficient social distancing in the cheap seats of the theater. The House said in a statement that while rules limiting the crowd to 65% capacity were in place, there was no stipulation as to spacing as long as audience members wore masks. The incident sparked an online debate over whether the Opera House was prioritizing the safety of those in the more expensive seats. Exit stage right. In early April, Pascal Allen died in the city of London due to COVID-19. Throughout his career, he toured extensively through Europe and Australia and sang with the Royal Opera House for 15 years. German mezzo-soprano and director Annette Jans passed away on September 11th after a prolonged illness. Through her career as both a performer and a director, Jans has appeared, ha, appeared at Bayreuth, the Vienna Volksoper, La Scala, the Théâtre du Châtelet, as well as many others. Dutch mezzo-soprano and teacher Carolina Kart passed away at the age of 89. As a singer, she performed at the Royal Albert Hall in an anniversary concert for Queen Elizabeth II. For two decades, she was also a presenter on the popular radio show Classique with Caroline on Radio 4. Polish conductor and composer Jan Krentz died last week at the age of 94. He was most known for revitalizing Polish classical music scene after the devastation of World War II. And on this day, September 21st, 
1828 first performance of Peter Joseph von Lindpeintner's Der Vampir, though he should have probably waited until October. Then again, the more famous Der Vampir by Heinrich Maschner came out in March of the same year, so maybe it was 1828 and it was super spooky and that was the important part when it came to timing. In 1874, the birth of Gustav Holst in Cheltenham. In 1942, the birth of English soprano Jill Gomez in New Amsterdam, British Guiana. In 1957, the birth of Russian soprano Nina Rauschio. And in 1968, for our dear Matt, Shirley Verrett's Met debut as Carmen. And that's your two-minute drill. So that clip was the dual debut of Leontine Price in Franco Corelli at the Metropolitan Opera in Il Trovatore. Uh, that night was named by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the most exciting night she ever experienced at the opera. And we are dedicating this outro also in her honor. I'm shocked you did not play Shirley Verrett singing Carmen in that moment. I, you that, know, That's how much respect Matt has for I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He was able to restrain I, himself. I can commit to a bit. If nothing else, I can commit to a bit. One of the bits we have going on tonight on the show, because we're testing our video, of course, is our sports apparel. Matt Cummings here rocking the uh, Penguins jersey or uh, T-shirt, it looks like. It's a T-shirt. Exactly. It's a commemorative T-shirt. Ashley with the socks swag I tried to... I tried to find my socks jersey, and I couldn't find it right before we started. So I have on a black T-shirt, which is showing my support. I got, Go Tim Anderson. I got, the, I got the Red Wings jersey on. Boo! Right I mean, here. great. Good job, George. Good job. And, and Weston, <laughs> Weston, you have all your clothes in the background, so you could just take yeah, your For pen. those of you who are listening to the audio-only version of this, I'm completely nude. Yikes. <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to say. Um, <laughs> I, I love this idea of doing... Puritani without intermission. Like I get the practical application of it, which is if you don't have an intermission, the show is shorter. There's less time that people are spending together. You're not having people using the restrooms multiple times during their time in the opera house. You're not dealing with concessions. What a great idea. It's kind of zoom through the opera too. You know, this is one of those things that I feel like is, 
uh, is very interesting to watch play out. Uh, unfortunately, here in the United States, we are not ready for this kind of COVID experimentation just yet um, because people aren't wearing their masks. Uh, I mean, we're going to talk about COVID, but that was not the I mean, there have been so many stories over the past week about companies that canceled or pivoted or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm, So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe we've got it right here in the U.S., at least with our approach, just cancel everything until we know better, you know? I mean, I will be be interested to see... um, this live stream that comes out of the Kennedy Center because literally they're going to have like 40 people coming through the stage door. In the whole Kennedy Center. I know, in the whole Kennedy Center. So like, yeah, it's not exactly a model for, you know, revenue generation, but it'll it'll be nice to see people perform somewhere in the U.S. It'll certainly be nicer than the uh, Ballo in Mascara uh, (laughs) uh, performance at the Teatro Real. Uh, This is really interesting to me because um, um, this was not like a clean... Um, oh no, we've overbooked, we need to cancel sort of situation. This was a situation where the people in the cheap seats um, were were, uh, sitting very close together uh, and the people in the expensive seats seemed to be spaced out just fine. And so they basically, right, they, they, for over an hour, they protested. Um, The conductor went on and off uh, multiple times before leaving completely. Um, there was the, a big, you know, social media firestorm about how like they, uh, they were, they're accusing the, uh, the company of prioritizing the safety of the, of the higher ticket, uh, price paying patrons, uh, which is a whole, uh, whole thing in and of itself. Uh, and, um, it's, it's really, uh, it, and it's really kind of interesting because, uh, coronavirus is kind of surging in Spain right now. Um, it's having a bit of a, a, a comeback. Yeah, but, you want to know um, why? It's because you have to wear your mask and you have to do six feet apart. You got to do both, Spain. Yes. All right. Just because you're in an opera house doesn't mean you're exempt from the rules. Hello. It, it's very much. Uh, obviously, there are multiple countries working with different science, different you know uh, social norms, uh, ability to control things. Um, but uh, it is kind of refreshing in a kind of morbid way to see uh, a, a somewhere across the pond, as it were, doing such a bad job like we're doing here in the U.S. <laughs> a sh- uh, for and the fact that yeah, the Schadenfreude. Else. I don't, I don't yeah. know if I get into the the, the Schadenfreude of that. Well, I, I think I think I'm more in, I'm I'm more inspired by the fact that this this crowd saw that they were seated in a disadvantageous way. And they did not just like accept it. They did not just leave. They made their voices heard. And I think that's uh, a, a good thing um, when it comes to supporting a cause like, you know, being safe in the opera house and not just, you know, going back because you can go back, you know. Um, exactly. And, right. it, it, it's... and of course, um, Anna Trebko paying the price now. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, I what's mean, your hot take she... on that? <laughs> I it's it's okay. Wind it's, it up, wind it up, Ashley. We're ready for you. Uh, ooh, I can't. Here's the thing: all of my recording equipment is on the one table that I would flip out of rage, so I can't flip it the way I want to. I okay. I have more than once on this broadcast. See, my video is getting fuzzy, listeners, because I, that's how much rage is around me right now. Um, I have more than once made my feelings about Natrebko's behavior, not her voice, but her behavior clear um i've been done with her behavior for a while um i'll start with this i i wish illness let alone 
you know, something as ravaging or as deadly as the monster that is COVID on anyone. I wish no one ill will. I don't want anybody to get sick. I will follow that with, I have been watching you since the spring on social media complain about how we need to open these houses and we need to have the art. And I understand that you want to get back to work, Anna. Get in line. Um, you are not the only one that's suffering. Um, I've been trying to unpack my feelings about this all weekend because I had a feeling, I had a hunch we might talk about this this week. Um, this is not a case where I can separate art from the artist. Um, I have many recordings of Ms. Dutrebko in my collection, and they are without a doubt exquisite. Her Donana and her Violetta have been incredible for a very long time. Um, but you know what? So are a lot of other singers. Uh, and it's not going to be hard for me or anyone out there to find a soprano who hasn't had the history of awful, self-indulgent, vitriolic behavior, which includes promoting Ukrainian separatists in Donetsk and supporting Putin's perusal of Crimea, uh, posing with separatist Oleg Zarnov and a check for 1 million rubles, calling rape allegations sexual bullshit and seemingly defending assault with, quote, nobody will ever force you to do anything that you don't want, or, and maybe this is the cherry on top, consistently endorsing blackface and wearing it as recently as June of last year in AIDA. Um, by the way, the irony isn't lost on anybody that you spent all of spring shouting on Instagram that you wanted these houses to open, and now they are, and now folks are getting sick, and unfortunately, you're one of them. Socially tone-deaf, out-of-touch artists like this only further the elitist stereotype that we have been trying so hard to dismantle, uh, widening that accessibility gap that so many people are working to narrow, and it really breaks my heart that we keep getting introduced to forces like this. Um, again, I wish you well. I hope that you come out of this ravaging disease on the more favorable end and don't have long-term damage, which has been well-documented to your respiratory system, which is the thing that you need to make money. Um, I guess I'll close with this. Uh, these are your own words, um, but I will apply them in the context of COVID. Uh, and I quote, I'm sorry, I think that it's total but if you don't want, nobody will ever force you to do anything. Never. If you did it, it means that you allowed that. End quote. And not to spoil your beautiful rant, but I just want to dovetail and say that we learned that at the Bolshoi, many people got sick and not just mm -hmm. Ildar Brodskoff mm -hmm. and Natrapko, but, you know, maybe people that were uh, in set design or in costume design or hair and makeup. And maybe they don't have the same insurance that you have, Mr. Shapko, you know? So Yeah. And first of all, thank you for letting me rant and share my feelings. I appreciate it. Maybe that's... Oh, of course. It, <laughs> it we're was, all it better was a, for it. It was a lot, but it's it's so frustrating. I, I see this as such a... It's, it's so representative of so many troubling behaviors that we've seen come out of uh, a certain echelon of, of singers in this. And it's... Yeah, like you said, Oliver, uh, you know, that that stage manager, that costumer, that dresser, they don't have another way to make money. Um, they don't have, I am assuming, um, a lot of resources to rest on. And so it's it like the rest of COVID. It ain't just about you. We're all suffering. It's not a contest. Well, I'll let you catch your breath and tell us about Agma since you are part of the <laughs> you're part of, <laughs> of the union. This is a, this is a very intense two minute yeah. drill for Ashley. But, um, <laughs> just just to touch upon the Met a little bit, uh, this came out earlier today. 
uh, a three point five million dollars settlement. Yeah, I tried to sneak it in there. I know. Yeah. Um, you can't. You can't sneak anything. And it's it's because news. There's no clause in these contracts about ethics and and morals. So right. what what James Levine did while he was music director technically was not uh, against his contract. You know, he didn't breach his contract by doing what he did. It's just he's disgusting and uh, he's, you know, abusing his power. But there's nothing explicitly that said that, oh, you can't, you know, favor the pretty boys and ask them up to your room. And and as I was reading the beginning of this article, I was thinking like, wow, that's an awfully large portion of his initial ask that they're paying out in a case that they said that they have no liability and... Uh, right. Like the very next paragraph was, this makes people think that maybe the Mets case w- wasn't as ready for court as they would as they were leading people to believe in the press. So, uh, yeah, it's just a bit of a, a a sad, tragic sort of comedy of errors there, and it's uh, and I think you know it does lead into the Agma story where you have uh, uh, some you know some large institutions that have a lot of power doing some weird shady dealings behind the scenes that aren't necessarily for the best for everyone and ashley are you ready have you taken enough of a break have you recharged your batteries i mean as a as a member of this musicians union agma america guild of musical artists um if they're gonna buy a building with my union dues does that mean i'm now a property owner in manhattan um (laughs) And can I come and stay there yeah, when I do auditions? Because I, I feel say. like that's, I mean, the transit of property is like, I gave you money, you put that money towards something that none of us agreed to. Um, yeah, it's the timing of all of this has been very interesting. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, basically, like, I started seeing in my social feed on Friday, um, because I'm shocker of friends with a number of uh, musicians, a lot of people started posting this whistleblower report from NPR. And the thing is, like, it's it's not like it came from some gotcha journalism firm. It's National Public Radio. Like they're they're a source that can be trusted. So this article comes out that they have this report and the, all of the whistleblowers and here's the timeline and here's what's happening. Maybe 30 minutes later, I get an email from my union who is the subject of the whistleblower article that says, "You may have seen this thing and this thing." And like, look, no shade to my union. I am grateful for unions. I'm grateful for what they do, but the there's something about this that's not lining up. And for someone to feel like they need to come forward as a whistleblower, like stuff's got to get bad before you feel emboldened enough to do that. Right. It's, it's very much, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to speak to since I am not a member of that union, but it, 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 it is just the timing, you know, of COVID and so many artists in desperate, desperate, desperate need of help. Any scenario where you don't cancel your new building in Manhattan uh, and and just start shoveling resources towards your uh, towards your members in a time like this seems even if this was planned long in advance, you know, it it just it's such a bad look. I I don't I don't understand uh, how they could have. It's it's one of those things. It's just like another thing that just feels so bad. Uh, coming off the heels of the whole Placido Domingo thing, um, it just—I—I it, I don't understand why these things are happening. And can I just? <laughs> They're so can I just say wrong. that this is like a bigger yeah. sandwich that we know because I think earlier today, Zubin Mehta, the conductor of the Three Tenors concerts, uh, and amongst other things, 
Um, he did an interview with the Wiener Zeitung, uh, an Austrian newspaper, in which he said, quote, we'll leave the blacklists to American puritanism. Levine has been ruined by the U.S. media. Domingo has had to leave the Los Angeles opera, which was worth nothing before him, and all because of complaints that come from failed artists after 30 years. That sounds like revenge. End quote. Zubin Mehta. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yoy, yoy. You know, he's, you know, he's really onto something. He's really got a point. Um, <laughs> Failed these artist. Americans, <laughs> these Americans, man, they just, the audacity that they would have to even suggest, nay, demand that every artist be treated with the same amount of decency and respect. I'm sorry. Here, reach into my blouse. You're right. I need this role. Go ahead. It's fine. You really did become head cabinet in this episode. Your transformation. I, that is my, well, with as many people as I've chopped down in this two minute drill, I may have to change my name to head cabinet because I have a feeling there's going to be some just people. Like covered in blood. <laughs> just, I, yeah, I mean, I, these, these are my thoughts and my opinions. I'm certainly not sorry for them. It has been a frustrating year in the world of opera, but, but wow. Um, and, and, Here's what I'll say. You know, Americans, we we get a lot wrong. That is not lost on any of the five of us. Absolutely. There's so much oh, we like know what? that Americans get. <laughs> um, there, have you heard about the pandemic? Have you heard about... Um, <laughs> no. Was there something happening? <laughs> oh, I forget that you're in a, you're in a rural area. I'm, I'm in my head cabinet. It's, it's you're okay. Yes, let's all retire to our head cabinets. No, I mean I'm sorry. I'm trying to circle this back around. I feel like I'm having a stroke. Okay. Um, basically, I I know there's a whole lot of stuff that Americans don't get right in a socio political and a cultural way. I know that we're behind the times in a lot of things. I do think in some places we are borderline puritanical. But to to suggest that common decency and respect for fellow man is is an unacceptable thing to quest towards that's that's terribly heartbroken a failed artist or no and also the level of failure of these artists is really in the eye of the beholder yeah absolutely and on a on a uh, on a on a slightly better note how long oliver before you are on master chef that's what i really want to know um you know, surprises may be in the works. I, I actually... Uh, <laughs> he can't see anymore, but... <laughs> if I have my way, there's going to be a cooking show on the Dallas Opera Network in no time, so... <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to be on, like, a Dutch television network, uh, but okay, I'll take Dallas Opera, too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is the way we wrap things up on the obs let's see here matt take it away what you got good or bad in opera world this week yeah i've got a good call i just discovered uh by reading an interview on friend of the show opera wire a new album from friend of the show regular muman uh that's part two of her mozart arias recordings was listening to it on spotify while i was prepping the show and it's very good you should check it out weston williams uh, I'd like to uh, issue a congratulations to um, a friend, traitor to the show, Tobias Wright. Uh, <laughs> enemy his, of the uh, show. <laughs> enemy of the show, Tobias Wright, on his recent engagement. Uh, we'll call off our uh, our, our attack dogs uh, and celebrate a truce for you in this good time. Ashley Hardgrave. Good call. If you're an American, call your senators. Don't call Mitch McConnell. He will not listen. Call your senators <laughs> and ask them to hold off 
on replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg until such a time is appropriate. And if you need to give them their 2016 sound bites where they suggested the same thing, feel free to put that in there too. Oliver Camacho. So for once, I'm going to go really off track and just talk about something that's not operatic. Um, the Emmys yesterday, very sad that Kieran Culkin and Matthew McFadden uh, lost out to Billy Crudup. I have not seen the morning show, so maybe he's amazing in it. But I think the cast of uh, Succession deserves all the awards, especially Kieran Culkin. I think he's awesome in that. But yoo-hoo uh, to um, Schitt's Creek, which swept everything, which almost made me cry. Well deserved. I mean, I was well so happy watching all of them. And Daniel Levy, just you could just tell he's so sincere and so happy for his colleagues and just just a wonderful person. I would I wish that we, he would come on the show and I could just kiss him. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the best speeches uh, came from Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Dr. Manhattan on The Watchmen. Um, if you haven't seen the Emmys, you don't plan to, at least go and watch his speech. It was pretty incredible. Um, he gives credit, basically, to uh, the black women in his lives, but he says it in a very beautiful way. And uh, for those of you who um, have HBO or HBO Max, there's a new show out by Luca Guadagnino called We Are Who We Are, uh, which sort of feels like Call Me By Your Name light. Uh, and you know how much <laughs> I love that movie, how queer it is. And We Are Who We Are, I, I believe, is going to address um, transgender issues as well as a sec other sexual identity issues um, in a very beautiful Italian setting. It has Chloe Sevigny in it. Anyway, one wow. real opera-related good call. I know I'm like weighing way over time here. Um, the nice people at Osea wrote a blog post about Opera Now. And you can find it very easy. Just go to OseaPresents.com and look in the blog. And you'll see an appreciation of Opera Now. And I was truly, truly touched. And if you have never listened to Opera Now, reading that blog post might be a great way to get your uh, foot wet. It's a great write-up and well-deserved. When I was driving over to tape the show tonight, there was a guy parked in a 7-Eleven parking lot who was just blasting opera out of his car. Ah, uh, was I'll it me? It. I, I mean, it was it was Pagliacci, I can tell you that. I don't know if it was you or not. Greedy. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Boxcar are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Boxcar would be totally cool. The creative consultant of Opera Boxcar is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Garrett McQueen, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera into the new year. Shana Tova, everybody. We're back with an all-new show next September 30, possibly with the Grammy-winning tenor Aaron Sheehan, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, more congressional nonsense. Join us.